Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. Uh, This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. This month, we have two very special guests, um, colleagues uh, from around the country. First, I'd like to introduce you uh, to uh, Tyrese Mendoza, who is the Chief, former Chief Operating Officer in the early stages uh, program, diagnostic program uh, from the District of Columbia, and who's now serving as the Chief, Chief Academic Officer of UNO Charter Schools in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Clarice. Thank you. And uh, our second guest we also have here uh, is Ms. Rosemary McKenzie. Um, uh, Mr. McKenzie is the early childhood division director for uh, New Opportunities Incorporated in Waterbury, Connecticut, um, serving families um, but focusing on early childhood intervention strategies. Um, so i also like to welcome you, Rosemary. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And so we, as usual, we um, extend our welcome to our faithful listeners every uh, month on the show, and we um, we've learned a lot together and, and scratching just the surface on new issues. And this month we're going to talk about um, early childhood education. I have two experts here um, who are practitioners and have spent a lot of time and dedicated a significant part of their uh, professional careers uh, to uh, improving the early childhood intervention strategies in their uh, respective communities. And um, I want to just get started by talking a little bit uh, with each of you to share uh, with uh, our listeners today um, some of the, the, I guess, the the, the trends that you see among the the new students that are coming in. Uh, We had a, a, a person who was representing the National Association of Elementary School Principals some months ago and talked about who the new student was um, entering elementary school. And I think uh, this conversation is, is, is an expansion on that, uh, about who these students are, um, what the particular new challenges are um, that uh, you see coming up from, from families, uh, from communities, uh, in your respective communities as it relates to early childhood, given its importance uh, in the in the long-term development and achievement of students. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll start with you, Rosemary. Just tell us a little bit about um, what what new what new things over your career you're, you're experiencing from families, but particularly as they send their children to you. What do, what do you see? Um, well, first of all, the agency that I work for is Anti-Poverty Agency, and the Early Childhood Program serves mostly uh, low-income families, so we do have Head Start funding and Early Head Start funding. Um, 
when we look at some of the problems that we're encountering um, with the population right now is that there has been a huge upward swing of some mental health and maybe just behavioral issues in young children. Um, children coming in at three years old that are um, displaying difficult behaviors or, or even you know, um, borderline violence because of things that they have experienced in their life. So we do have a mental health consultant um, who is here once a week, and we have other supports through the state. Um, but it's difficult, and, and you know, we talk often about what's causing this, and I think a lot of what happens with our families is, is the children are exposed to a lot of things they shouldn't be exposed to at a very young age. And when you look at how connected people are through technology, um, you know, every child right now, if they're throwing a tantrum, I see the mom hand them the iPhone to entertain them. And so there's, there's not that talking, there's not the lesson being learned of, you know, how you behave a certain way. It's, it's more pacifying children. And so oftentimes when children haven't had an experience, um, a preschool experience, and they come to us at 2.9 or 3 years old, um, they don't have those social skills to be able mm-hmm. to acclimate to the classrooms. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, it's interesting because I think it's going to be a good segue, this conversation, into next month's uh, show uh, where we're going to be talking about mental health challenges and public education. You mentioned that and then also uh, uh, the strategies. Uh, Clarice, tell us a little bit about uh, both what you saw in the District of Columbia and even in your role as the Chief Academic Officer in Chicago of UNO, um, not limited to those schools, but certainly probably that are indicative of, of uh, schools in an urban area. What do, what do you say? Sure, absolutely. So during my time uh, at D.C. public schools, some of the sort of major trends that we were seeing for um, young children in the district who were uh, entering our schools uh, in kindergarten um, was that there were so many students who were already sort of significantly academically behind, even at that level. So, um, you know, there there was no pre-K for all in D.C. There still is not, even though there are a number of advocacy groups there who who continue to uh, who t- continue to make the case for why um, you know pre-K is, is so important. But um, uh, you know that sort of really challenged us to sort of say well, what do we need to do um, as, a, as a larger district and how can we involve the community and inform the community and educate the community on um, making sure that they do everything they can, um, especially families uh, with young children, uh, to, to make sure that their, their children, their child, has a really strong start to school. Um, and so uh, what we really tried to do was to, as, as a district, partner with uh, local healthcare organizations, um, especially pediatricians who um, were seeing children um, between the ages of three and five um, and um, were aware of some of the behavioral issues that children um, within that age range encounter, um, as well as sort of the, uh, again, sort of ongoing developmental and cognitive um, and sort of academic um, issues and challenges um, that they might face uh, in that age range as well. And um, from there, kind of sort of triangulating this partnership between parents, healthcare providers in the district, and of course us at DCPS, 
uh, we were able to really sort of get out the word and we really did kind of hit the ground running um, and let people know that um, it's a really great idea to, to um, have your child go through a developmental screening to see what their strengths are and also to see what their, their areas for growth are, um, you know, in, in a number of different developmental domains. Um, and, you know, if your child qualified, um, you know, the district would then in turn provide services uh, to make sure that by the time your child was five and was entering kindergarten uh, that he or she would be on track um, to, to be successful and to start much more stronger. Um, I will echo in my current role, uh, we have over 800 uh, kindergartners enrolled in the UNO Charter School Network. Uh, we are seeing, especially with this this class, this cohort that entered this year, uh, a number of behavioral issues. And so one of the things that we've done um, is work with several other community-based organizations to start offering parenting classes uh, for uh, parents, yes, um, who are looking for uh, concrete strategies to address some of those behavioral issues and also to address the academic issues. Um, sure. You know, again, we, uh, we have a lot of students who um, are coming in who haven't, you know, don't even have sort of the ability to recognize letters. So they're not just pre-reading, but they're pre-pre-reading. Um, and we found that these classes, um, they're very popular. Um, we have had to expand our offerings, um, but parents are really eager to get concrete strategies. And, um, you know, similar to uh, the community that Rose is serving, we also serve um, a, a population that's socioeconomically challenged. And so we offer these uh, classes and services and strategies for free. And we found that that's really um, been beginning to make a difference. Sure, sure. And it's interesting because both of you have mentioned um, social economic status. And, and uh, Rose, you, your, your uh, organization, you, you described it as an anti-poverty organization, I think you did. Did you not? Yes. Um, you know, I was just thinking about an article I read in the New York Times a few weeks ago um, we are all uh, fairly familiar with uh, this landmark study that was done about 20 years ago, probably at this point, um, where this study found that uh, by age three, uh, children of wealthier professionals have heard millions more times words than those of less educated parents. And so, give, so when they, now this is by age three, so by the time they enter school, even uh, some pre-kindergarten programs, uh, they are they're way ahead, depending on the social economic status. But a new study that kind of is a follow-up study, and it was published actually in Developmental Science, they showed that by 18 months, children from uh, wealthier homes could identify pictures of simple words, you know, dog, ball, what have you. And so then by the age of two now, they're saying, that affluent children have learned 30% more words than children from low-income homes. So uh, I think it's, it's really interesting because we, we have seen time and time again that study after study talking about the benefit of the uh, investment in early childhood education, and it's kind of across social economic uh, lines and and I know even in in New Haven when I was on the board of education in New Haven one of the initiatives we had with some partners was we we had individuals hired that uh, would go into hospital rooms 
in the first two days while the mother uh, of a newborn would would have they would make a visit and and from the school system give them a book and say it's important that you start reading to this child now um, and so Clarice you talked about a few strategies um, and kind of from a broad sense, uh, getting them in. I, I want to hear a little bit more for our listeners because we do have a lot of people who listen from uh, parent advocacy groups and, uh, and, and even from district-level groups. Um, Rose, could you share also some of the, the things, specific strategies that you are using to sure. get uh, parents uh, trained, educated, that may not be from an educated population? Um, some well, some of the things and it Clarice touched on doing screenings. I mean, Head Start, as you know, we do tons of screenings on children, and one of the screenings that we do is called the DECA, and that's Devereux Early Childhood Assessment. And what it is is a it's a normed assessment of children, um, with, and it looks at the child protective factors in preschool children age two to five. And so, what happens with this screening is. Not only do teachers do the screening on the child, and, and it's really about social-emotional um, skills and um, behavior development, but they, the, ch- the parents also have a part of this um, screening. So there's a parent version and there's a teacher version, so that kind of starts the conversation. Um, and it, it'll ask simple things like, you know, can your child, you know, transition to another activity without throwing a tantrum? You know, very simplistic viewpoint. And um, we look at what the parents say, and then we look at what the teachers say, and then we come up with a plan of how to uh, individualize for that child. The other thing yeah. that we do is we, we do um, parenting classes. There are a lot of um, organizations within Waterbury, over 75, that have kind of joined forces to say, how do we serve children from birth to um, um, 18 years old? And so there are a lot of trainings that go on. I think what makes the biggest impact is a really skilled teacher who can talk to parents at their level and explain to them, you know, why it's important to speak to your child. I mean, if we look at what would we would deem normal for a three or four year old to know from 250 to 500 words, vocabulary words, um, you know, that's pretty low, actually. That's just very average. Um, parents don't always understand that. And when you look at some studies that have come out recently, and I believe it was in the New York Times as well, is how poverty taxes the brain. So if you have a parent who is in a situation um, where they can't make ends meet, they're struggling to pay bills, they don't have enough food, that type of stress taxes the brain so much that they can't really pay attention to other things. All they're worried about are the basic necessities. So what we do as an organization is we try to serve the whole family, and, and our byline is building relationships to end poverty. So we try to get all of those things in place so that we can have that conversation with the parent to say, hey, you know, it is important to speak to your child. Do you want your child to be successful in school? Um, you know, attendance is important. We, I, we really sit with each parent and make a family development plan to say what are your goals for yourself and your child, and then how do we help you reach those goals. And that, but honestly, I think the biggest impact is having 
almost someone in a mentor position, whether it's a teacher or a family service worker, that can speak very honestly with the parent and say, mm-hmm. you know, you need to do this. I saw one of our um, custodians coming in the other day, and there was a young man with um, a child who was running in the parking lot. And the custodian said to him, hey, hey, you need to hold his hand. And I'm sure this this young father didn't want to be, you know, spoken to that way. But, you know, the older custodian just had this way of speaking to him to say, this is the right way to do things. And I think if you build those relationships throughout your organization, you can make an impact on parents. Sure, sure. Uh, To our listeners that uh, just tuned in, you've reached uh, the Perkins platform, and we have a, a focus today on um, early childhood education. Uh, the title of today's show is Pay It Forward, the investment um, you get in, uh, in early childhood education. And we have uh, guests from uh, this, the um, various organizations uh, in Waterbury and in uh, Waterbury, Connecticut, and Chicago um, who have a focus on early childhood um, and so uh, towards the end of the show, we'll, we'll open it up. Um, if any of you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, uh, feel free to call in. The number to call in is 347-826-9029. Again, 347-826-9029. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about strategies. We talked about the, the gap that exists in skills. Um, and, and uh, Rose, you mentioned something that, um, I've heard similar stories uh, thousands of times from, from parents, other parents, uh, from, from uh, principals and other individuals um, that have to do with um, the stress associated with um, making ends meet and, and just being able to get a job, keep a job, and how uh, what appears to be uh, a lack of parenting skills is actually – um, choices that people have to make. Um, yeah. uh, and so, um, uh, Clarice, also, I want you to jump in here. Um, what do you see in terms of parents? Because um, well, a lot of people give you know, parents from low incomes a real bad rap about um, you know, parenting skills. I mean, many of them have, have, uh, have expressed some distress about um, being accused of not caring for their children, but when in fact they've had they've been forced to make choices between um, showing up for a disciplinary hearing at school um, and staying at work and keeping a job to be able to feed them. Um, what, what is your both of you? Please jump in on this. Is, what is your general sense of my, about the cooperation um, that you get from parents, and uh, once you approach them in a way that is uh, that preserves their dignity and integrity? Um, what 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 kind of reception are you getting from parents when you, you reach out to help them in these areas? Well, I'll jump in. I think I've seen throughout my Head Start career, which is over 18 years, um, parents really, you know, volunteering first to kind of be part of a parent committee or our policy council, and, and they do that because they do want the best for their child, and it's a huge investment of time. Um, and what I see is when they truly have that in their heart, you see huge changes. So you have a parent who didn't realize how much children learn through play. Um, 
and and would sometimes think, oh, they're just playing in the classroom. You know, they're they're not learning. They're not sitting down, being made to you know write letters and numbers. And through our parent education, you know, they learn about the skills that the children are absorbing and and, and practicing through play. And you see a transformation in the parent once they have that knowledge. And then they start to understand what their role is. And and we always say that the parent is the child's first teacher. And we talk to parents about how very important that is. For the most part, you get really good buy-in if you have, again, that person who could speak to the parent at their level and, and not accuse them, but support them and say, you know, there might be a different way of approaching this. Um, I've seen people come from, you know, being really quiet at meetings to actually becoming the president of the policy council and, and running the meetings. And that's the type of empowerment that we want to start at the preschool level so that when they transition into kindergarten and higher grades that they are still an advocate for their children and that they have a voice in their child's sure. education. Sure. And Clarice, I know you, so you had the previous role in directly in, in diagnostics. Um, uh, you know, and I, I would imagine uh, in terms of early intervention, a lot of times that's a very difficult conversation to have with uh, parents about uh, learning uh, disabilities or otherwise that they may be encountering with very young children. Uh, what, what do you see in, in that area? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and it was uh, for for the the team members who worked at each of our diagnostic centers. Um, you know, we we often had a chance to reflect together on how to share the news with parents about um, a particular developmental or behavioral or cognitive di- diagnosis that their child might be facing. Um, and so, you know, we really did our best to. Um, we, we paid a lot of attention to uh, the way we designed our centers, geographically where we placed our centers. So not at DCPS headquarters downtown, but actually in the hearts of the communities um, where the centers were needed needed the most. Um, and we uh, really actually, you know, um, Rose mentioned uh, the teacher being a partner. In our case, we actually had a whole team of people in addition to to clinicians who were, uh, you know, actually um, conducting assessments um, with the child. Uh, there was a, uh, a child find field coordinator who uh, met the parent or family uh, at their home, at a place in their neighborhood to talk them through the process and get them familiar with the purpose of, of our center and the purpose of the assessments that was about to happen. Um, from there, um, we would have a family a family uh, care coordinator who would essentially act as the family's advocate throughout the entire process, um, making sure that they were uh, keeping in touch, checking in, um, you know, sort of between the steps and the timeline uh, between doing an initial screening and then actually having um, a formal meeting to discuss the findings um, from the from the actual set of assessments, um, and and from there we would partner very closely with schools um, 
to uh, make sure that uh, you know once a child if they were diagnosed and, and needed services that it would really sort of just be the seamless transition from early stages into to the classroom or program where the child would be receiving their um, their early intervention uh, services and so we really made an effort from a diagnostic perspective to make it a totally seamless process so from your front doorstep all the way to, to the program or, or the, the place of services that eventually uh, the child would end up in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because both of you have touched on uh, uh, in different ways the whole notion of, of um, giving parents uh, uh, the, the real power um, to take control of, of situations, but really having a voice. So that comes what what it suggests about both of you and certainly your organizations that you 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 start with a underlying belief that the parents are the first teachers, but that the parents um, want to see and you believe that they want their children to be successful. Um, and you have put in place an infrastructure though that um, demonstrates that. And so you you say you we want them to have a voice, and you give them opportunity through policy panels and 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 councils to to be involved um, and, and engaging them. Um, what would your advice be to individuals who uh, might not have um, organizations and structures as well developed? as you are. There are a lot of people who listen in who are saying, give, give me something, some kind of idea, where do I start uh, for those who have just now recognized that they need to engage parents differently. What, what is your advice to them about getting started, um, um, whether it is uh, they are trying to galvanize parents around um, Head Start or whether they're trying to uh, help them uh, understand what what they need to do at home. Well, what are the first steps to getting buy-in for parents? Um, I would say on our approach to doing that is, well, it's kind of, it, there's a couple of layers. But the, the first is that, you know, we try to build a relationship right away with the parent through home visits. Mm -hmm. um, so that we actually go to the home and visit with them um, e either right before the child starts or right after the child starts so that we can, we can build that relationship. I think the other thing is to always keep in mind or, or bring the conversation back to what's best for the child. And I think if you always mm -hmm. frame it that way, then parents have bigger buy-in. So you're not preaching at them. You're not telling them what to do. But you're having more of a conversation where you say, you know, what is best for your child? You know, what's, what's the way we want to approach this? Um, and I think if you're very sincere and open that way, um, you can make, a, a, you know, a pretty fast bond with the parent um, because it's all about the child. It's not about me telling you what to do. And I think, yeah, and I think from, from like a, a district leadership or, or a network leadership or even a community leadership uh, type of standpoint, um, uh, our biggest advocates in um, garnering the the community and, and also the political support to, uh, you know, essentially rebuild our, our early diagnostic uh, early early childhood diagnostic centers in D.C. was um, uh, asking parents to to be partners and 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 to be again our our biggest advocates. And so we had. 
um, at the helm of, um, you know, sort of the leading this effort uh, was a group of, of committed parents from uh, different diverse communities in D.C. Uh, they, they were the face. Uh, they built the narrative, um, and they were really able to, to garner the support and sort of build the momentum for what became essentially a, a district-wide movement. Um, and I say district in terms of the District of Columbia. So from Ward 1 to Ward 8, um, they were really uh, the, the people who um, uh, allowed us to go into the community to, to, to do this work. Um, I think the other piece from an organizational perspective is that when you are in a large school district, you know, you're, you're worrying about uh, test scores and, and performance data and school scorecards, but, uh, you know, at that time, former Chancellor Michelle Rhee, she really had the courage to say, early childhood is, is just as important as everything else, and so let's make sure we look at uh, re re reallocation of resources, especially uh, funding resources, to um, invest in these programs because in, in the long term, this is really going to change the trajectory of uh, students who are at DCPS uh, for the next, you know, 18 years. So, um, you know, that, that was really important, making it a priority um, at that level, especially financially as well. Sure, sure. You know, in our last minute, a minute and a half or so, I wanted to uh, um, give an uh, opportunity to read an email question that actually came in from one of our listeners in California. Uh, and I kind of smiled and chuckled about this. I didn't know this happened anywhere but in in um, in New York City, where you you hear stories of of um, mothers after their first trimester um, will put on a deposit for a child to get into early childhood programs. Um, and so I wanted to ask if any of you are uh, aware of any programs that actually engage parents, um, you know, from the typical and especially young parents. Uh, it, it says uh, during. Uh, uh, young young parents during the pregnancy, which I think is a very good question. Um, and so if briefly, either of you have any experience with programs that uh, engage parents and young parents, especially during pregnancy? Um, I know here in, in Waterbury, the actually the hospital does that, and where they have someone meet with new parents for the first time. And then also Early Head Start. Most Early Head Start programs engage pregnant women um, to actually help them with their health needs and start that education process um, and then getting them on the waiting list for care um, once their mm -hmm. child is six weeks old. Grace, you aware of anything? Yeah, I, just the same thing in D.C. Um, there were several specific uh, programs that were geared towards uh, young mothers and young parents, um, and uh, the uh, physicians who were, were leading this programming um, were a combination of uh, pediatricians um, as well as um, uh, gynecologists who sort of really partnered together to make sure uh, that uh, young parents especially were aware from the get-go of the importance of, of, of mom caring for herself during her pregnancy, of, of dad being very supportive throughout the pregnancy and things that he could do to, to contribute to making sure there was a healthy birth and that the, the child was off to, again, a strong start. Excellent, excellent. I want to thank both of you and uh, thanks so much to the audience for tuning in this month. I want to ask you to join us in, uh, again next month on uh, December 18th at 2 p.m., uh, we have a, a, a 
special show and planned for you, uh, looking at the mental health challenges in our public schools. We have the president of the National Association of uh, School Psychologists, is going to be a guest, who's going to um, talk a little bit uh, from New York City about mental health challenges uh, in an elementary school uh, that they have. And um, so it's going to be a great show. But um, to both our guests, uh, Rosemary and uh, Clarice, uh, special thank you to both of you for taking your time out of your schedule to speak with us. And so to the listeners, until next time, go well, stay well.